0: Over the past decade or so, we've seen a significant shift in the British political landscape. Triggered in part by the financial crash of 2008, there was a fresh wave of conservatism. After 13 years of Labour government under Blair and Brown, in 2010 we saw this play out in the election of David Cameron. But alongside a rise in conservatism, there was a renaissance of its more surreptitious cousin, nationalism. Politically speaking, this looked like the arrival of nationalist parties and movements such as the English Defence League, British National Party, Britain First, and UKIP, the UK Independence Party. These movements gained varying degrees of popularity and recognition. There seemed to be something in the patriotism and national pride which resonated with the communities across the UK. Whilst their policies and beliefs span across a wide range of issues, from immigration to anti-Islamification of the UK, Perhaps their most appealing common ground was a sense of preservation of so-called traditional British culture in the face of increasing multiculturalism. This is, of course, just the most recent iteration of British nationalism, a notion which has taken many forms across history. It's also a more blatant presentation of nationalism, which I think is often less dominant of an ideology, something which lives in the corners of the minds of Brits, native or otherwise. I think that much, that modern nationalism in the UK doesn't necessarily present itself in things such as love of our flag, but in a more subtle allegiance to royalty, the military and history. Now, this past week has been an explosive week in terms of public interactions around the royal family. Whilst emotions were high around the conversations that were had, it does strike me that many people made known what they might previously not have spoken about. The now famous Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah sent shockwaves across the British media, which I recognise is just a caricature of public opinion, but nonetheless it's hugely influential. And from the media, it went into the homes and minds of many. I don't know about you, but my social media was buzzing with commentary on both sides of the discussion, ranging from the reasonable to the outrageous. Saw a wide range of headlines which disparaged Meghan, Harry or the rest of the royal family. What is obvious to me is that the British people have a closer attachment to the monarchy than might otherwise have been thought. People's allegiance to the Queen and the Royals runs deep. Superficial evidence it might be, but the fact that around 18 million people in the UK watched both William and Harry getting married, which equates to about a third of the population, speaks to an affection for our Royals. Now the military is an equally complicated metric for assessing nationalism, But certainly pro-military rhetoric plays on the themes of patriotism and defence not only of national territory, but of culture and identity. Many of you will know with more personal experience the national sentiment during times of war, and indeed the sense of unity that comes from facing a joint enemy. Perhaps most recently this was seen in the so-called War on Terror, especially in light of the attacks of September 11th 2001 and the terror attacks in London in July 2005. In November 2020, the government promised an additional £16.5 billion to the defence budget, which has already got a current budget of £40 billion. With such large figures, it can be easy to lose the significance, but that's a lot of money to be being spent during peacetime. Maybe on an unusual application, but I can't help but think of Matthew 6:21, which says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Military strength can be seen to be representative of perceived national strength. Dating back to the days of British Empire, military dominance and subsequent spread of British culture felt like superiority over other countries, cultures and communities. Which brings me to the last aspect, an attachment to history. Recent conversations around statues and historic heroes have brought up ideas around defending British history, not rewriting it for modern descendants. It's an incredibly challenging thing for a nation to recognise its shortcomings or wrongdoings. The Rebuilding of modern Germany post-war is just one example of the important roles things like education have in reshaping national identity. With as long and prolific a history as Britain has, reaching such perceived heights as ruling over a quarter of the world and victory in the world two world wars, it's no wonder that British cultural narrative is attached to its history. So... What then does this all have to do with the church? Well first, it's worth asking whether this nationalism exists within the British church and then whether or not that's a good thing. Are attachments to things like monarchy, military and history just parts of what make us who we are? Have we set them up as idols to us? Is there a healthy relationship to be found between patriotism and the Christian faith? One obvious point of connection is that of the perception that we are a Christian country Now, this can mean any number of things to different people, from the more crusader-like mentality of being a country who should be defending and promoting Christianity on the global stage, to the more moderate thought that we're a culture and society built upon Christian morals and values, which should remain important. The Crusades, which were a series of historic religious wars, uh, were centred on the idea of a defence and advancement of Christendom, or the Christian world. There were primarily clashes with the growing Islamic world, which laid the foundations, on a worldly level at least, for a conflict between Christianity and Islam. This remains to some extent to this day. For example, in 2001, President Bush, shortly after the 9-11 attacks, said this in a speech. This crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. Invoking the language of crusades both highlighted and created division between the white Christian West and the Islamic Middle East. Arguably, there's nothing Christian about invading other countries and murdering their people. In fact, Friedrich Schleiermacher, an influential 19th century German theologian, defines heresy as that which preserves the appearance of Christianity and yet contradicts its essence. One then could reflect on the Crusades as heretical, having far more to do with the kingdoms of earth than the kingdom of heaven. So again, I bring it back to our central question. What has this got to do with the British church today? Well certainly we must recognise the impact our history has in shaping modern Western Christianity. It's worth, I believe, inspecting what we each mean by Britishness and the impact of that on our faith. It's certainly important to pay attention to what's happening in the wider British cultural conversation, particularly what that which is sowing division and animosity. What then are the dangers in the marriage of nationalism and faith? For me, there are three things which stand out. First, an increase in division instead of unity within the church. Second, an increase in hostility instead of peace. And finally, an increase in exclusion instead of inclusion. As far as an increase of division instead of unity goes, this week's been a good example of this, particularly in the dialogue around the royal family. If these issues, such as a perceived attack on the royals, for instance, become too important to us, they can control our hearts. Some of the vitriol directed at both sides were far from the attitude of let those without sin cast the first stone. Any loyalty which then creates a them and us attitude results in division. At an extreme level, the struggles in Ireland show what an escalation in loyalty to the things of earth can bring about. This leads on well to the second point. Hostility instead of peace. As far as my reading of Christianity goes, with Jesus' teachings at the core, but added to with the rest of the biblical text, The main message is love. Loving our neighbour is not simply to say those in our geographical communities. Just as we are a global church body, we are also a global community. To love our neighbours means that we love those not just from our own nation. The parable of the Good Samaritan was case in point on this matter. The Samaritans were viewed as enemies to the Jews, but the Samaritan in the story was the one who truly loved their neighbour. When we come to such issues as the military and international conflicts, I begin to wonder what the Christian voice should be. For some, it's opposition to war. For others, conscientious objection. My own position is influenced by the lives of my grandparents, who served in the medical corps during World War II rather than to fight, who then moved into another war zone in North Africa just years later as missionaries. Others might well suggest that to serve one's country is part of Christian duty. Regardless of our personal opinions, I'll leave it with this part of Jesus' message from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Finally then, we come to exclusion instead of inclusion. In the conversations had of late, where the idea of history is defended, tends to be at the expense of an oppressed people. To ally ourselves to the past can hinder our ability to follow wholeheartedly where God wants us to be and where to go. To make way for others to enter the church, we must tear down the barriers which might stop their entry. Jesus was again clear about those who put stumbling blocks in the way of others. In Luke 17, we read, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Ultimately, however, we're left with one significant question, our answers to which may have significant implications. Is it possible to belong to both the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of earth? Can we serve both heaven and earth, God's throne and the Queen's throne? If so, what does a healthy relationship between the two look like? Well, here I'll stop my opinions and my research, and I'll lean on scripture for answers, or at least guidance. In Philippians 3.20, we read about us being citizens of heaven says Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live in accord to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell I tell you even with tears, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. For me, this is a good summary of other things we've learnt through Jesus' life and teaching. We must live as though we are citizens of heaven and not England. That citizenship came at the cost of repentance, forgiveness, mercy and love. And it's after these things we should be shaping our lives. God is the only God, and we should be wary of anything, nationalism or other things, which have the potential to become idle to us. But what then to the day-to-day existence of British citizens? Well, thankfully, the Bible has plenty to say about this too. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul speaks well in ways to be a good citizen. Chapter 13 of Romans says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honour to whom honour is due. I'll finish now with a passage which displays the beautiful impact the church can have on the kingdoms of earth. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, we encourage to pray for those in positions of leadership. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let that then be my closing statement for now, that we should hold in our hearts and in our prayers those who lead our earthly nation, not that they may profit here with land or wealth or standing, but that they, the royal, the soldier, the pauper, the pacifist, May enter into loving relationship with God and gain citizenship under the kingdom of God and our King Jesus.